All right, and hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Way of the Truth Warrior. My name is David Whitehead. I am very happy to be here, and I'm honored to have Scott Shara with me. Uh, he's a gentleman who has been through yet another horror story with the hospitals, the medical system. Um, and so this will be part two of the series that I've been doing covering these types of cases, these cases as hard as they are to learn about and be aware of their crucial to having us and those that we know and love understand exactly the level of uh, corruption we're dealing with, uh, the many issues that plague our medical systems, both in Canada and America and around the world. And um, so I'm very honored to have you here, Scott. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I can only imagine uh, what you and your family must have been through over the past uh, period of time since this tragic story unfolded for you. And I just want to quickly, before we, we do a full introduction here, I just want to direct people to two websites. You have just started a new Substack, uh, which I'm going to link to uh, for everybody. And that would be the our, if you find it, it's ouramazinggrace.substack.com. Uh, and then, of course, your main website, I'll just pull it up so people can see it here. It is ouramazinggrace.net. And it's got the whole story, beautiful photos. Uh, people can go through and there's lots of great resources here. You've got a foundation here. So uh, let's let's just start from the beginning for people. There's definitely going to be people that are aware of your story, but many that aren't aware. And so where would you like to begin, Scott? Well, first, I'll say thank you for having me. I mean, it, it is humbling every time somebody invites me on their program, and I'm, I'm super thankful to, to be able to keep sharing Grace's story. I'm, I'm uh, glad people are interested. We see it as, as critical. I think time is urgent, and it's critical to get the, this story and other ones that people are willing to share out. So I, I would start before the story just to give a, a brief background on Grace. Uh, Grace was 19 years old. Uh, she had Down syndrome. And if any of you know anybody with Down syndrome, you know that the 21st chromosome is known as the love chromosome because they just, they love unconditionally. And that's what Grace did. Uh, Grace was very high functioning. Um, she, uh, she could drive a car. Uh, my wife taught her to read and write. We homeschooled Grace and my wife's attention to homeschooling her made Grace a superstar. So she just, uh, she, she loved everybody. And that's, that's one of the messages I'm hoping people take out of, of this story is Grace, uh, we had an angel. God lent us an angel for 19 years and she did nothing but love. And um, part of the message here is to love regardless of what happens to you. And I'm not there yet, but I mean, I can, I can talk about it. And you know, when we wrap up at the end, I'll, I'll share where, where that comes from. So then we can, um, we can dive right into the story then if you'd like, David. Sure. Well, thank you for that. And I'm always so grateful for people such as yourself, because there are many people who have experiences like this and they don't share it publicly. They maybe they're afraid or they don't know where to go or it's too difficult. And so the, the courage that you have and your family has to come out with this in this time is exemplary. And so hats off to you. And um, let's, let's start from the beginning of this. Um, so she was 19 
and you know what how did this all start to unfold and then let's get right into the the actual story sounds good so i'll say hats off to god because i couldn't do this without him um the uh and i would also say then david as as i'm telling i'll take some pauses and if and ask you if you have any questions but feel free to feel free to interrupt because if you have the question that means listeners are going to have the question too and i'd rather have you interrupt than hold the question so yeah the <clears throat> we think grace got COVID around september 28th and I say that we think that because we tested her on October 1st with a home test and she tested positive. We had assumed at that point that the Delta variant was running rampant. We just assumed any sniffle was COVID. We were 100% prepared at home with all the frontline doctors um, um, recommendations along with ivermectin. And I'll explain how I think Grace ended up in the hospital when we get to that point. But ultimately, um, we didn't really think anything of it. She tested positive only because we were going to go to a wedding and we thought, boy, instead of spreading COVID around the wedding, we better just test her. And so that's, you know, she was well enough to go to the wedding, but she had a cold. But anyway, she tested positive. We still didn't think anything of it. On October 6th, um, her uh, oxygen level was not able to be maintained above 90%. So she was in the high 80s. We saw that as an emergency and we took her to urgent care which ultimately went into the emergency room. So I'll just pause there and just say uh, several things. One is we thought that was an emergency. And that's important for people to understand that if you have low oxygen, it's a high priority and it's it needs to be taken care of. Whether it is an emergency level or not is somewhat of a matter of opinion. But regardless, if I would have known then what I know now, Grace, we would have still went to the emergency room, but we would have never admitted Grace to the hospital. And at that point, the emergency room physician would have sent us home with a prescription for oxygen and a steroid. So why that's important is you have a choice. Just because they suggest admitting you to the hospital doesn't mean you have to go. And, and if it is for low oxygen, I would tell you with 100% certainty, do not be admitted. And I say that because there is very clearly in a lot of the hospitals an agenda to take people out, which we'll end up covering at the end. Then the second take home relative to an emergency room or hospital stay is to investigate the, the local hospitals, um, doctors in your area before the need happens. When you're on an ambulance ride to an emergency room, that's not the time to check out if the hospital has been bought by the government or not. Uh, so how did we end up in the in the emergency room? And I'm saying we because three days after Grace died, I went to the emergency room uh, with conditions uh, probably about three times worse than Grace. I just about died the first night. And after researching, Dr. Chetty is a South African doctor who's discerned the why behind it. And I think he's right. And that is, there's a small percentage of the population who has a genetic, uh, just a genetic um, background that they would produce clots and inflammation. And I knew I had both of those conditions before COVID. And so Grace would have inherited those conditions from me. And that fits the, 
that fits the narrative, I think, pretty well as to why Grace and I would have ended up in the hospital, where my wife, Cindy, whose COVID conditions were substantially worse as far as symptoms, her oxygen was 95% plus the entire time. So that's uh, that question, I think, is an important one to address. So and your when, your wife, just to say, did your wife have to visit the hospital for care with that, or was that she no. dealt with it at home? Yep, no, she had no issues. The only reason we went in was for low oxygen. Other than right. that, Grace was fine. She wasn't gasping for air or anything like that. When I went in, I was, I was having a hard time um, even breathing. But I had let it go longer. You know, Grace had just died. Um, I'd let it go longer than I should and. It was just a, it was a tough time. And so when I had my wife take me in three days after Grace died, I mean, it was, it was pretty bad. So you bring Grace to the hospital. Uh, you just basically were going initially just because, you know, if you're concerned, you know, she has this predisposition. So you want to just double check. Were you just going just to get a diagnosis and then go from there? And is that where things changed or um, how did that work with the hospital? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, at that point, I really had no expectation. I just thought, you know, I had the mentality that most people would have. It, is, it wasn't all that trusting of the medical system, but I had no reason to think the white coat um, wouldn't take care of us. You know, I, I didn't think a hospital is a place to get well. You know, the alarms are going off and, you know, the care is poor. You know, so that was my my attitude going in, but I would have never thought that there's an agenda. I had no idea that this COVID agenda and all this stuff was in place at that point. And so we just innocently went there and took the recommendation of the emergency room physician, which was to admit Grace to the hospital. That was the first confrontation that we had, which the, the uh, attending nurse said, because I said when they wanted to admit her, I said, well, then I'll be staying. And she said, well, you can't. I said, well, what's the reason I can't? And she said, our COVID protocol doesn't allow any visitors in the, on the COVID wing. I said, well, then I'll be taking Grace home. And, you know, of course, I wish they would have said, well, then take her home. But they deliberated that challenge for two hours and then came back and said, we decided you can stay as long as you don't leave the room. I said, well, of course, I'm not going to leave the room. Strangely, you know, Grace had Down syndrome and that condition demanded that we have advocacy rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act. But in spite of that, they tried to, to not have us be advocates with this hospital policy idea. I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff. And if you think about what's going on, when people really study these numbers and you see that what I'm telling you and David, what you're telling your audience is the truth, you'll see, well, what, what is the reason for all of this? And of course, there's a there's a money trail with the the government COVID payments. Um, there's immunity from uh, liability uh, under the CARES Act, and then third, there's a shroud of secrecy because they use this COVID excuse to not let people in the room. So one of the things that makes Grace's case so unique is not just the fact pattern with the meds and the DNR, which we'll get into, but is that we were there. So, I mean, they took Grace out in spite of us being there. So what do you think happens when there's not an advocate in the room? 
you know, I was challenging Grace's care the whole time, which we're going to get into next. And I ultimately got kicked out for challenging her care. But what happens if there's no advocate challenging the care? And, you know, that's a rhetorical question. But I mean, I think it's pretty obvious when I tell the Grace's story that the care your relatives receive when they're in the hospital is astronomically worse than the care Grace got because they don't, there's nobody watching them. That's a good point, Scott, that you just brought up, because uh, I've been covering this whole thing since the beginning, as many have. Um, and what was really shocking to me was this uh, division, or not division, it's worse than that, the blockading of family members to be with loved ones, especially elderly people. How many elderly people died alone and, 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 and afraid and never got to even touch a loved one or be with a loved one? Or how many of these cases do we hear where you know, a, a mother can't even be with their child or their loved one uh, while they're in the hospital, you know, dying at the hand of these treatments. And it's just such a sad state of affairs. And I guess the justification in everybody's mind who's following this from the mainstream perspective is just, oh, well, there was no other choice because of the severe threat of COVID. So the hospital has to do these things and it only appears to be nefarious. But to those, everybody that I've spoken to that has had direct experiences in the hospitals uh, tells me a different story. I, I never went to any hospital. I had some, uh, I had two, twice throughout the whole thing, I had something, whatever it was, and I dealt with it naturally at home. I was fortunate to be in good health and I was able to deal with it, my whole family. But many others, you know, they panicked, they went to the hospital and then it got worse from there. Even right. a good friend of mine who was a, another documentary filmmaker um, he went to the hospital with his wife advocating for him. They had ivermectin prescribed to them and the hospital refused to use that prescribed ivermectin in the hospital. And they actually lied to his wife and said that they did when they didn't. And they gave him remdesivir and intubation, which is why they believe that he passed away. And now the mother's in there suing them and there's a whole thing. You can just imagine the scale of this all over the world, because the hospital practices were pretty much the same everywhere you look, right? Well, interesting that you bring that up, because one of the things I did early on in last December, when I started researching, I thought, I wonder where the United States fits in the scheme of the 200 countries in the world. And we are consistently in the top 20 in deaths, deaths per capita. And so you look at a country like India, and they're down in the bottom 25 percentile in far, as far as deaths per capita, but they're allowing ivermectin to be used. You know, we were told to social distance. You know, our, you think about people are crammed in in India. We have spread a spread out population in the United States, yet our death rate is four times higher. That doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense if if the elites are pushing something that's that's wrong. But you're right, overall it is happening worldwide because it's a it's a worldwide agenda. Right, right. There was, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the woman that was giving some grand jury testimony to Reiner Fulmich and his group, um, Manukian, I believe is her last name. And she said something perfectly that when she started summing up all the points that were contradictory, that were out of uh, ordinary, where they were changing definitions of pandemic and vaccine and all of this as it's happening, changing the laws, bypassing your um, the the usual human rights that you would have. Uh, and and she lists it all. And she just goes, when you add it all up, there is no explanation 
of all this that is innocent. There is no innocent explanation because it's just too much. It's not like, oh, we just made a mistake or we were listening to the wrong advice and it was just, it was under the, it, she's like, we're well past that. There's no innocent explanation at this point. We're dealing with a criminal element. Now that doesn't indict every doctor or nurse out there. It is a compartmentalized system. And I'd love your thoughts on, on how you think that works. But um, it, we're looking at this as whoever's running the protocol, whoever's in charge of these protocols that are given to these hospitals. And then again, the following of the money to see that, well, isn't it interesting that hospitals were incentivized financially to diagnose patients with COVID, to diagnose deaths with COVID, when you later now all these lawsuits and all these cases of people going, my 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 loved one didn't die from COVID. They died from a motorcycle accident, or they had a they had right. a pre-existing heart condition, or they had cancer, and they like and and yet the whole all the statistics are overblown by these false positive diagnoses. But there is the financial incentive for them to be paid more money when they do that diagnosis. So you just realize that just there we have a problem. And then of course, continue your story. Where, where, uh, where would we go from here into the fact that you were, you were actually seeing that what they were doing was, was harming her and, and you fought against it, right? I did. Um, just a, a quick sidebar. I mean, it isn't that it's all hospitals, but the ones that have been bought by the government, they clearly implemented an immoral, illegal, you know, you, you can make up the adjective to describe it, agenda. So the hospital I went in, they did everything other than oxygen different than what was done with grace and just to give you a quick anecdote the the after i made it to the next morning the nurse came in with a little pill container and she said i'd like to go through the pill regimen i said what do you have in there she said i have um, a multivitamin a probiotic vitamin d vitamin e and fish oil i said you got to be kidding me you guys don't believe in that stuff and she said well we do here so that's an example. And I would tell you with 100% certainty that a hospital saved my life. Uh, if I would have went to the same hospital as Grace, I, would, I wouldn't be telling these podcasts or telling the story on these podcasts. I mean, it's, it was completely different. I think and I believe God put me in that hospital for one, at least one reason was so that I could objectively tell this story because it, you know, I went into a different hospital. It was literally 100% opposite. They even gave me gave me budesonide treatments. They didn't do any of that with Grace. Anyway, on to Grace's story, and what I'm, I'm going to just give you two examples of of challenges for the hospital, and both have big uh, bigger repercussions. That's why I picked these two examples. So uh, October seventh was Grace's first full day in the hospital. Um, I really thought the perspective was going to be a mini vacation with my best buddy. And that first day was like that. I mean, we goofed off all day, watched movies. They had a great menu. We ordered everything we wanted off the menu. Uh, the next morning at 8 o'clock, a doctor came in. This is on October 8th and said, you're going to need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. I said, what is that recommendation based on? And he said, well, we did a blood gas draw last night and the numbers aren't good. And I said, what time did you do the draw? And he said, 1130. And so then I told him, at 11.30 last night, Grace's blood pressure was 235 over 135, and her heart was racing at 150 beats a minute. Why? Because I was working with two of the nurses to get Grace's oxygen settled uh, before bed. 
they had put her on a high flow cannula, which is a cannula that shoots oxygen up your nose at 40 miles an hour. And she was frustrated with it. And I perceived oxygen as an emergency. So we then worked with a BiPAP and this whole process took a couple hours. And, and, you know, Grace was pretty stressed out over it, which I don't blame her. I mean, she's, she is not a kid to get agitated, but that was agitating her. So we, we just got done through, going through that and they take a blood gas draw. So I told him based on that, I want you to retake the numbers. And he did, and Grace was fine. So we dodged the ventilator bullet, but we would have not dodged that if I wasn't there. And so then I asked him, so at this point, I thought ventilators were fine. I had no idea that these ventilators are a death sentence because I think President Trump unknowingly promoted ventilators at the beginning of COVID. And I really didn't think anything of it. You know, we had a ventilator shortage and factories are being converted to make ventilators. But what I'm gonna tell you now is the truth about ventilators. So I asked the doctor the prognosis and he said only 20% of people walk out alive once they're on a ventilator. And then I, I had my laptop in the room, I started researching, I find out, well, it's only about 15%. And the 15% who do walk out most of those die in the first year because of damage that was done to their lungs. After Grace died and I started this research, I found out the money trail relative to ventilators and found out the hospital makes about $300,000 if they convince you or your loved one to be put on a ventilator. And is that, sorry, is that, is that per person? Per person. Yes. Oh my. It's huge money. So, I mean, they're, so they, subsequent to that event, they asked us four different times for a pre-authorization or a pre-approval to put Grace on a ventilator. They wanted that in their back pocket and they said, just in case. Well, just in case, I know what just in case means today. And we never gave them that approval. And they framed it this way. They said, these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of your family. So I'm guessing many people have heard this before and you know don't agree to it your loved one's going to be on a ventilator and they are going to die that just is that is the fact and you can't be agreeing to this and the next example i'm going to give you is is how they figure out how to pull this off so if you're trying to get your hospital records and after somebody died and you don't know any of the insight insider information you're left with an audit trail that shows, well, this is what we had to do. Your, your loved one's oxygen was too low. We had to vent them. And I'll, I'll prove that here with the next story. So October 9th comes the next day. That's a Saturday. And I started, uh, Grace was hungry. I ordered food, started feeding her. The nurse comes running in and says, you can't do that. I said, well, what's the reason? And she said, well, because Grace's oxygen saturation is only at 85%. And so I started processing that and uh, after about 20 minutes, so I had all my COVID materials in the room, figuring that I was going to get COVID while I was there. So one of the things I had was my own oxygen meter. So I put on Grace's finger and it read 95%. And so I called the nurse back in and I said, is my meter accurate? She said, yes. I said, well, why is my meter reading 95% and your, your machine's reading 85%? And she said, well, because the leads get sweaty. So I said, if, if that's known, why don't you proactively change out the leads every three or four hours or whatever it takes so you have an objective measurement, given this is the primary measurement you're using to manage my daughter's care. 
And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful you caught this. Oh, wow. So process that in the scheme of faulty equipment. We have many, many instances since then of, you know, I, I was monitoring the oxygen. My daughter, Jess, was monitoring the oxygen when she became the replacement. Many times the machines were off. In fact, they were off by um, fit almost 50 points on Grace's last day. So it isn't like it's 2 to 3% off. So if you just think through, in a, if you're trying to pursue a lawsuit, the doctor's reports are called prima facie evidence. So those, that evidence stands unless you have something to the contrary. So they can artificially, artificially lower those oxygen numbers to justify a ventilator. And you know, our case proves it with, with, with beyond a shadow of a doubt. Wow. Wow. Yes. And I'm so glad you brought up the ventilators. Um, it had been a while since I covered this on the show, but it is one of those things that we've learned after, you know, everybody kind of went through all of this that you start asking, why are so many people dying in the hospital, right? And I got this from asking, I've interviewed personally, uh, local to my area, four different paramedics. Two of them are friends of mine and two of them I just met, but they're local to me. And I started noticing the ramping up. Actually, it's only been since maybe last year where I started noticing the ramping up of the ambulances out because I live in an area that's outside of the major city. So we don't get lots of ambulances going by. It seems like now consistently there's at least four or five ambulances going by in my place every single day, um, oh. which means they're coming out to the country. And I was like asking them, well, what are you guys seeing on the ground? Two of them were in Vancouver during what they called, you know, the, the big 20, the big push where everybody thought this was the big pandemic. And they had all done all this training and preparation. They were all told, get ready, get ready. Here it comes. We're going to be overloaded. And he's like, it was crickets back then during the height of the pandemic for us, where, where they were, they're like, there was no pandemic. And I asked them, what are you picking up? What are you going to pick up COVID deaths from people who are dying in their home? And he said, I haven't personally picked up a single COVID death this entire time. What we pick up are suicides, heart attacks, and drug overdoses. That's what we pick up. And when I recently spoke to these paramedics after we've seen the jab roll out and everything else that's happening, you got all this footage of athletes dropping dead in the pitch and all that. Um, I was asking them like, is, are those heart attacks coming from the virus? Like, did you notice that they were happening before the vaccine? And they're like, no, no, no. Now it's all heart attacks and blood clots and strokes and things like that. And it, we noticed that only after the introduction of the vaccine. So that, that became another thing of discussion. And so I've been speaking to just these paramedics who are the front, front line and their story from what they've told me. And I've looked at other research as well, that what the media is reporting about how these deaths are occurring is way off. And if they're getting information from the government agencies and the hospitals, and of course the WHO, et cetera, then now we know that a lot of these numbers are in major question because of some of these elements that, that you've brought up as well as many others. No, that's, that's right on. I don't know if you saw Steve Kirsch's newsletter this last, it was about a week ago when he said that uh, the United States is turning over um, pandemic authority to the WHO completely for the next one. Um, yeah, they're trying so, to push this globally, right? I think the WHO only needed like 70% of the countries to sign on to it. 
And they're trying to basically put in a permanent state of pandemic law where at any time they can just bypass your medical rights and your personal, your, your constitutions anytime that they deem there to be a threat, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Well, we move on to the next, the next day, which was Sunday, the 10th. Um, I don't want to go through this in detail just because we have so much more to cover, but that day, seven o'clock in the morning, the head nurse came in with an armed guard and told me I need to leave immediately. And after a back and forth and a threat to call the Appleton police department, um, I was escorted out by an armed guard. And we I'm sorry, Scott, them- just, just so people understand. So you were just started the advocation with what's up with the intubation, with the number, with, with the, oxygen gauge and everything. And, and so you're just trying to have these conversations as a parent, trying to save your daughter and they just bring in a guard and tell you to, and they're trying to kick you out basically just for questioning them. Is that kind of, is that accurate? Yeah, that's the nuts and bolts of it. it but their, they, their official excuse is crazy, but this is how they do it. Their official excuse was, we suspect you have COVID. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I mean, just, just process that. You're the ones who told me I was going to get COVID. Of course, I'm going to get COVID. I'm in in the room secluded with my daughter who's got COVID. You know, and if you were so worried about it, why didn't you kick me out the first day or ask me if I had it? I tested myself the first day at one o'clock because I had a fever already at one o'clock in the afternoon. So I was COVID positive one o'clock in the afternoon on the 7th, the first day we were in the hospital. So anyway, it's it's a very frustrating. Right. Yeah. And it's, anyway, it's, why that's significant is because we were 44 hours without an advocate then. We had to hire Grace's special needs attorney to negotiate with the hospital attorney to get my daughter Jess in as a replacement. My wife couldn't do it because she had COVID. So during that 44 hours, they used that as their opportunity to ratchet up a drug that we did not no grace was on called Presidex. They put grace on a sedation med called Presidex starting on October 9th. And this is so sick. One of the medical malpractice nurses who reviewed grace's file said they, it's called chemical restraining. This is how they set grace up to be killed the last day. Presidex, the package insert for Presidex says that it's only supposed to be used for no more than 24 hours. It's an anesthesia drug for surgery. And the anesthesia nurses will tell you it's supposed to be used for no more than three hours. That's how dangerous this drug is. But when, as soon as they put her on it, it classified Grace's room as ICU. She never changed rooms. The care never changed, but it classified the room as ICU. So then if we would have wanted to, so I think the reason they did this was to set Grace's death up and to prevent us from removing her. Because if you want to remove a patient that's on ICU, it's called against medical advice. This is another significant point for people to understand. You start losing your rights as an advocate or a parent once the patient's in ICU. And in this case, there's no reason for it. There's absolutely no reason. Grace was invented. She didn't need to be sedated. It just is, it, it's crazy. So my daughter Jess now gets in the room and the day of the 12th, Grace had a, a good day with Jess. They goofed her off as sisters before Grace went to bed. Remember, she's got this BiPAP mask on. Uh, 
Jessica calls her two boys, Grace's nephews, and she sits up in bed and hollers to them, hi, boys. You know, sedated, she's sedated with a BiPAP mask on, but that's all well she's doing yet. She's a, she was a fighter. Jessica noted her oxygen saturation the entire night at 98 to 99%. Um, so now we we go into Grace's last day, and I'm going to ramble through that. So if you have any questions sure. before that, yeah, go ahead. Then no, okay. This is this is pretty intense, and there's a lot of details. I'm just going to cover them all, and and then you can ask questions at the end. So at eight o'clock in the morning on Grace's last day, the doctor called Cindy and I at home, asking our decision for the fourth request on a pre-authorization for a ventilator, and we told him no again. Then he said, Grace had such a good day the day before, we should, um, uh, we should um, uh, put a feeding tube in. And so we foolishly agreed to that. And I say foolishly when you hear the rest of the story, but just process, why did she need to even have a feeding tube? They wouldn't let me feed Grace. They wouldn't let Jess feed Grace. And the nurses only fed Grace a few protein shakes. Grace should have been fed the whole time. There's absolutely no reason she couldn't have been fed the entire time she was in the hospital. And so now she's malnutrition. So because she had such a good day, he's recommending the feeding tube. Um, you know, it's very frustrating. And so now Jessica, we're done with the phone call with him. Jessica says there's a 14-year ICU nurse that's on, in charge of Grace's care that day. This is significant because you start seeing the sequence, you think, well, this cannot be a mistake. This was not a rookie. This has to be, you know, one of the podcasters about a month ago asked me if I thought this was premeditated. And as I've gone through this now, I've come to the conclusion and I've done some, a, a fair amount of research on genocide. And I think this is premeditated. So the 14 year ICU nurse is now in charge of Grace's care. Jess says that she's gonna take a shower so remember, when I'm in the room, they wouldn't let me leave. There's a shower right in the room. The 14-year ICU nurse says to Jessica, you can't take a shower in the room. You got to go home. And so Jessica, being somewhat fearful of being kicked out like I was, decides to go home and take a shower. Not realizing it's Grace's last day, she just thought she's going to be there for another two, three days until Grace gets out. So she goes home to take a shower. She comes back inside of an hour. She overhears two doctors. And the ICU nurse say the family's not going to like this. So she says, what aren't they going to like? And she's, they said, well, we had to restrain Grace while you're gone, which means they strapped her down to the bed. So she said, what's the reason? Wow. And they said, well, because she wanted to get up and go to the bathroom. So they made her poop in the bed. They used that as an excuse to ratchet up the Presidex further. One of the attorneys we're working with said, Scott, do you think you would have been strapped down to the bed if you're if that happened to you? I said, absolutely not. So that got God got me up at three o'clock that Sunday after he said that. And I looked at all the doctor's reports, which there's 22 doctor's reports for Grace's seven days. And I looked for one thing, which is references to Down syndrome. They referenced that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times in 22 reports. So just process that. That would be like saying, if, David, you're in the hospital and they put white male with beard. Do they need to do that more than once? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's sickening. So now, instead of waiting for, they ratchet up the Presidex again. Instead of waiting for Grace's numbers to rebound, 
the assist, attending nurse said to the ICU nurse, I think we should wait before we do the feeding tube. The feeding tube. She says, no, we're not going to wait. And so they do the feeding tube back to back with strapping Grace down to the bed. Now they ratchet up Presidex to max dose. Because think about a feeding tube going down your nose. Of course, you're irritated. Now they max that, oh, 1048 in the morning, Grace was at max dose Presidex. So remember what I told you about Presidex. This is an anesthesia drug to knock you out for surgery. Grace was knocked out the rest of the day. Oh my that God. didn't stop them. At 10.56, we found out this after a second records request. So the, the medical malpractice nurse um, told me that after she reviewed the records, I thought we had everything. She said, you're missing at least 1,000 pages. So now we get another records request. We find out in that one, the doctor put an illegal DNR on Grace at 10.56, eight minutes after the max dose Presidex. At 11.25, I'm going to come back to that. At 11.25, they give her an anti-anxiety med called lorazepam. So just process this. She's already knocked out. At 5.46, another dose of lorazepam. Three minutes later, another dose. And then if that's not enough, she's still not dead. At 6.15, they gave her a two milligram dose of morphine as an IV push. So in that 29-minute window, she's on max dose Presidex, two doses of lorazepam and morphine. You and I would have been knocked out dead by that combination. The intensivist that's reviewed the records said the meds killed the, your daughter. The doctor who reviewed everything with us even said there's no question about intent. It had to be intentional because you can't do that. We found out that they would have had to override the alarm system to issue that because the alarm won't allow them to dispense that combination of meds. And the reason why is the package insert for morphine says that if you combine those meds, it causes death. The, the package insert for morphine is probably the most damning document in against the hospital. All this stuff is under the tragedy tab on Grace's website, everything I'm telling you. The, the package insert also says they're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. After they delivered that dose of morphine at 6.15, Grace died at 7.27, hour and 15 minutes later. A nurse did not step in that room. Jessica was holding Grace the entire time. She felt her get cold. So she asked the 14-year ICU nurse, can you come in and take a temperature? Grace is getting cold. She tells her, well, that's normal. Just cover it with a blanket. Well, that's not normal at all. They should have given her the reversal drug. At 7.20, Jessica called Cindy and I via FaceTime panicking. She said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, they won't come in. I've been trying. So since she estimated 30 nurses in the hallway at this point because of shift change. So Cindy and I start hollering, save our daughter. They holler back. She's DNR. This is the first we knew she's DNR. Remember I said earlier, 1056, the doctor put the DNR order on. We had no idea. So they holler back, she's DNR. That violated, and then we holler, she's not DNR, save our daughter. Right there at that moment, at least seven state statutes were violated by the hospital. Because you have to have a DNR in writing and signed by the patient or their advocate. You know, they did it, they did it unilaterally. That's not legal. Jessica ran out in the hall to find out what's going on. The nurse had that DNR order right on her computer screen and read it off that the doctor put a DNR on Grace and we can't do anything about it. But we watched Grace die on FaceTime at 727. 
when I took Cindy to the hospital then, I had to stay in the truck because I had COVID. Her and Jess cleaned Grace up. The, our pastor met us there, the funeral director. After everything was done, the pastor was wheeling Cindy out in a wheelchair, and a nurse had Grace's belongings on a cart and came next to Cindy and leaned down and said to her, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. That statement got us into the research. Otherwise, we may have not ever done anything. You know, we just think, well, it, it just happened. So thankfully, that nurse said that. Jessica, that later that night, said, Dad, there was an armed guard posted outside the room. And it wasn't a, a guy doing his rounds. When Grace died, Jessica climbed in bed with her to hold her till Cindy got there. And that armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the entire time. Oh, so sorry, Scott. Man, this I, is, I, I know. I mean, go ahead with questions right now, and I, I know you want to you want to move into what are we doing and everything else. But I want you to fire away your questions because it's this is intense. Uh, I, and thank you for for going through that yet again. Uh, must be hell for you to recount, but maybe even hopefully a bit therapeutic in a way where you can feel comforted knowing that your story is going to. Uh, be positive for people that need to hear it, that this is, this is something that you need to do. And so I just, I want to congratulate you on, on having that ability to do this, God, I appreciate it. Um, I feel almost speechless because the rage going through my body right now is pretty intense because that is insane. Y you have no rights going into that hospital. Uh, they basically violated your rights as a parent um, for them to put a, DNR on your daughter without your consent. Uh, yeah, that has to violate every statute in the book. Um, and the fact that you're literally watching your child pass away, you're asking for help and everybody's like, we, our hands are tied and you got an armed guard posted. How could you not assume that there was something nefarious going on here? And then you start to imagine, well, how are they looking at what patients they're they're going to target in this way like it just really makes you think so when what would be the right question for this it would be when you were told or because you weren't there when they were told no did you you only had that one nurse afterwards that mentioned that to you did you not have a single nurse or doctor there trying to help you at the time it was only afterwards is that correct when, 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 who told me no, which nurse? Uh, well, just that you had said that you were asking all these nurses in the hallway, save our daughter, save our daughter. And they're like, it's DNI. We can't do anything. Did you not have any, not even a single one was there. I'm just wanting to establish that they didn't do anything yeah, to basically I mean, try to save her seemed, life. It seems almost unbelievable that not one Step. I mean, it, it's hard to grasp that nobody had a conscience that was strong enough to stand up. Um, it is a strange thing, but I think that is has become the norm. Uh, you know, they look at it. There's a lot of different reasons for that. You know, some of them are afraid. Uh, some of them don't know any better. Um, and some of them are malicious. They actually think they're doing society a favor by taking out the the disabled and the elderly. That's just horrific to imagine. Um, and I think you're right, unfortunately. And so you, 
you're basically just left with this. So after, after this happened, um, what was the process afterwards? Like you had to obviously go through, I, I, I mean, where, where would you pick up from that point? As soon as that nurse told you and something triggered in you, oh my, there might be something here. If this nurse is telling me that she thinks that your daughter's life could have been saved and it wasn't, she's indicating to you that it had to do with the hospital protocol that was the resulting, the result of her death. So go from there. What, what was it? So you're yeah. like, okay, let me get into this. I'm going to research. How was it from that point forward? Well, I really wasn't in a place to get into it at that time because I had COVID pretty severe. I had started documenting things um, because my I'm analytical. I like to write. And so this whole hospital stay with Grace, I had already started transcribing my notes. I had taking, taken contemporaneous notes while I was there. And uh, but then once I got into the hospital and, you know, it gives you some time to think. And I really I got pretty weak. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, I was when I was able to get home, I was on oxygen. Then we had Grace's funeral. And then the doctor who has been helping us said she called and said, Scott, you got to get these records so that we can see what's going on. And by God's grace, we got the records within four days. And uh, we started going through them. And then by November 8th, we knew they killed her. We had gone through enough records. We knew they killed her. So then I sent a written request via email to have a meeting with both the CEO and the doctor. And then we sent them all of our research. Um, thinking, it'll seem naive when I tell you this, but thinking... Um, this is still an anomaly and give them a chance to repent and, you know, change, change it. So it doesn't happen to the next person. And on December 2nd, they wrote us back via email and said, we're not going to meet. We'll send you a letter instead, which they sent a letter dated December 15th. We received it on Christmas Eve and the letter basically denied everything. And, um, you know, then, what was their excuse? How did they, if you don't mind my asking, how did they explain away all of these anomalies? Well, they said, for example, the DNR, they said, well, the doctor had discussions with you and your wife and, and, you know, you guys basically said, yeah, when, if this happens, we'd think a DNR would work. And it was all, it was really a terribly written letter. It's very damning for the hospital because it doesn't excuse all the state statute violations. They basically, the way I, I would say it is they saw them as being, they saw themselves as being caught and now they have to come up with something. In that letter is their official excuse for kicking me out, which is I had COVID, where the head nurse told me very specifically, she said, we're kicking you out because you're shutting off the alarms at night, which the nurses trained me how to shut off the alarms. And then second, the last, she said, the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. I mean, so then when you get the hospital letter, your official response is, they, they kicked me out because I have COVID. So you can see how it, it's quite a disconnect. Hmm. Um, but, and they get to kind of write the narrative, which is horrifying because you experienced it differently. You don't really have an opportunity to defend yourself unless you bring it to court and can hash it out like that. Um, well, and, and exactly. But even, you know, what's strange is that, so when they, 
when they said they wouldn't meet, you know, they took three weeks just to respond to say they won't meet. And so during that three weeks, I'm really processing, what are we going to do with this if they don't meet? And so I was prepared that day. And so that literally that day I filed complaints with the uh, Wisconsin department that regulates doctors and a related department that regulates hospitals. And both of them did investigations and came back that the hospital and the doctor did no wrong. So, I mean, you're hearing this for the first time, but I mean, look at the tragedy tab on the website. I mean, I have 500 plus hours of research in this. I gave it all to them and to say that they did no wrong. So that is the date when we got that letter in the mail uh, saying that they did no wrong. It really dawned on me that these hospitals have been bought. They are doing the government's bidding. So if you file a complaint, now you're filing a complaint with the government. They can't find that hospital or doctor guilty or the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. They had to find them innocent. And I mean, that is just sick beyond sick. And then the research, of course, took me way beyond that to see, okay, well, where's the money? So the money was how I first thought about, I mean, they did this all for money. And in Grace's case, um, because we denied the ventilator, they weren't making hardly any money on Grace compared to a typical COVID patient. And the day they took her out, the hospital was at 100% capacity, and the, so was the emergency room. So it was very easy to take Grace out. And as soon as, you know, Grace was doing well, as soon as we denied the ventilator for the fourth time, the whole protocol changed and they went right to taking her out. Um, so then and, you, they, and that they went, sorry, so they went, so they went from you're denying the ventilator to the drugs and, and you think yeah. that's what it was that, um, did it in the end, eh? Exactly. You know, there's absolutely no reason for those drugs unless you had an intention to take somebody out. Well, then I stumbled across Dr. Elizabeth Felit's research about rationed care and, um, this whole thing that led me to a agenda 21 and okay, my gosh, this is. This is actually all pre-planned. And when you start doing the math on, on the, the genocide for the disabled and the elderly, the hospitals are, an, excuse me, the hospitals are on average receiving a $100,000 bonus from the government. The average person on Medicaid and Medicare, which is the elderly, costs the taxpayer $32,000 a year. So just do the math. It's a three-year payback to take out the elderly and the disabled the math is starting to come out with this. So disabled females, just think through this, disabled females compared to non-disabled females were 11 times more likely to die of COVID in the hospital. What's the reason for that other than genocide? Yeah, they're going to blame COVID because that's the cover for everything is it's all COVID. It's all COVID. Even these people dying from the jabs, that's all COVID. But it's not. It's the Grace, protocol. It's the drugs. Grace's it's, it's, disability had nothing to do with her death. Hmm. Yeah, that's important because that that could be one of the excuses they'll try to pull out is that, well, she was a unique case and, you know, this thing's happened, brush it under the rug. But no, you're sitting there watching them do these treatments that you can visibly see are affecting her negatively and they continue to do it even without your consent. And then they're basically like, so sorry, this just happened. Like, that's infuriating, Scott. So your research, um, and you were mentioning there, I want to bring something up real quick, the immunity thing. 
So we've all heard this in relation to these vaccine companies who since 1986 have had legal immunity from prosecution if there's um, anybody that is harmed or killed from their vaccines. And we see that they got that for these emergency use authorization vaccines. So people are used to hearing about that when it comes to the pharmaceutical companies. But the hospitals, um, they also have immunity as well under these types of conditions. Is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, the, there's very, very few exceptions. And the exceptions are so rare that attorneys don't even want to take the cases on. You know, we, we've been fortunate to have in this process. I mean, one of the people that God introduced to us was Tom Renz. And so, I mean, we're, we're pursuing things um, with his help. And I would suspect there's going to be a case in the future. Our, our position on a case is if God opens that door, we're going to take it. Um, but the, we're, we've already uh, you know, said many, many times, we're not going to take any money because it's not about the money. It's about if if a lawsuit makes sense in order to get this stopped faster, you know, we're never going to get legislation to stop it because they're all in on it. So how are you going to stop it? And, you know, Tom has really convinced me that a lawsuit can make sense because we can get it stopped with that. It's the only thing that these hospitals pay attention to. Well, and I'm glad you're working with Tom. Um, and there are there are a few lawyers. Uh, we we have a few in Canada as well that are trying to do case legal hearings and stuff in front of the courts. The courts here are corrupt and backed up, and you know it's the same show everywhere, right? It's right. interesting how in Canada, and I'm sure it's everywhere, we haven't had a single one of these lawsuits. And there have been lawsuits. There's been lawsuits against the government by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. There's been lawsuits against the government by teams of doctors and nurses in Canada, not a single one of them have been heard. And so what uh, some of these lawyers like Rocco Galati, who's one of them, who's a constitutional lawyer in Canada, and a few others that are working on their own take, their own strategy with the legal side, they've been getting so many cases that are very similar to yours, um, where the they believe this is either medical malpractice or actual murder. Um, and they are now just bundling them together to go, well, just sign on. And it's almost like everybody's in a queue because each single case would take forever for them to do. So they're like, let's right. just band all these cases together and just attack it head on. But here's the thing to date, not a single court in Canada has even heard one of these cases. So that's where we're at. And I, I haven't heard of it being heard anywhere in the U S either. So right. the world is, and this, that's the thing, Scott, this is global. This is a world right. operation. And that's what really, makes me go, we have to start paying attention to this and learn how this works. Um, so we've learned so much in this past two years and we have so much more to learn, but um, where would you say now your direction mainly is, is to go to the court of public opinion, basically to try to alert people, get the, the website going, you've got a foundation. Do you want to maybe segue there unless there's some sure. other points we missed? Yeah, we're, we're definitely still in the, I'm calling it the groundswell phase, which we're trying to just get an, as many um, podcasts as possible to share the message so that uh, we can, we see it as a physical and a spiritual thing. So the, the physical, make sure, you know, people are aware that this is going on. The spiritual, we really hope that people's hearts are pricked to, to turn to God because he's the only one who is never going to dupe you or let you down. And I'll just read. So um, 
Genesis 50, 20 says, and as for you, ye meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So that's where we're at with, with, with that piece, the legal piece. Um, I spent several hours on that today just because they need my help with certain things. And then the foundation, we also, uh, we, we have our 501c3 status as of a little over a month ago, and that's really starting to roll now. We did the first planning meeting today, and so I'm hoping that gets off the ground in the next month or so. And that's really the positive. You know, we're in the negative piece of this, but the positive is we really would like to help um, disabled kids, other kids, families that didn't have the same opportunities that we were able to give to Grace uh, because God blessed us uh, with things that people just don't aren't able to do. So we really would like to, uh, Cindy, my wife says that, so other kids can shine God's light like Grace did. And I mean, that would just be fantastic. That would be a lot more positive than what we're focused on right now. But we've got to focus on this negative because people's lives are being saved. And we have, I mean, there's so many cases. People are emailing us all the time about this, help this, and it saved my mom. And it, it's, you know, so this is is something we've got to do. It's it's that important. People are, people are really naive yet. Well, thank you for doing that and bringing that positive spirit to it, which is very challenging going through, you know, the, the pain of your loss and everything that happened, but to be able to find that internal strength and to have that with you present, that spirit with you is, is key. And it shows, it shows Scott, that you're trying to turn this into a positive and, and help others. And I think that's, that is the silver lining here is that um, as sad and as horrible as all of this is, it's a massive learning lesson for all of us right now. The whole world is going through, a, 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 we have to learn about all of these things that we used to ignore. Nobody really wanted to pay attention to the corruption. Nobody wanted to pay attention to the types of legislation that were being passed to take parental rights away from their children, et cetera. And um, yet here we are, we're, we're forced to look at it because it's, it's knocking on all of our doors. So, right you know, hats off for you for doing it. So that's how I see the positive is even though this is a very sad story, um, it's a lesson and we have to learn it. And you have saved lives just by speaking out and you're going to save more by doing the work that you're doing. Um, so maybe tell us about the foundation and a little bit more about uh, some of the aspects to the, the work that you're doing on your website. You've got this new Substack as well. Is this where you're giving us updates on things? Because I'm sure this is moving really quickly. Right, things are moving so fast. So I mean, we so the the Substack is for a monthly newsletter, but also can be for announcements and things that happen. The website has become exhaustive. Uh, it's it's fantastic because we have all the well, not all. We're still keeping some of the research close to the vest, but um, most of the research is posted, and that's it became a necessity because there's a believability factor to the story. Somebody who doesn't know me would think this can't be, it's too out there. And so that's when we decided to post the research so that people can look with their own eyes and connect the dots because the stuff is, I have the literal letter that, that or letters that were received by these Wisconsin departments that I, I referenced. Uh, the timeline of the meds, all of this stuff is on the, the website, the money trail. And it's, it's uh, so the website has been, has been a, become a great tool and lots of people are going there. We're getting stories 
there's about know, close to 40 stories of some cases worse than graces. It gives people an outlet that we can post the stories. Um, so it's, it's an education tool and a resource at the same time, but mainly the website is about grace. So if anybody goes to the website, yeah, I want you to spend some time and learn about my best buddy because there's cool stuff on, on the website about grace. Oh, I was going through it this morning, Scott. It was just, the, she's just a light. Like you can see the beautiful pictures you have, the memories, uh, she's playing violin. She's, you know, like you said, high functioning, beautiful soul. And to have this horror happen is just, it's, it's so saddening, but I'm so glad to see what you've done. You've got a beautiful site. You've got the research. I love that you added the research as well. Not everybody does that. Some people will just put up the story, but you dug on this and I want to, you know, hats off to you for doing that because, um, that's what this is all about is us learning what we've not been told. We've not been told any of this by our doctors, by our media, by our government, something nefarious is going on. And I'm glad we have great people. There are doctors and groups and people trying to alert everybody to what's happening. And now if we can add the testimony and then show people, hey, I did this research. You can do it too. You, you don't have to just believe me. You can go learn about this. And, uh, and that's a positive thing. And you, you said about about 40 other people so far reach out with their story. I can only imagine how many stories there would be like this all over the world when you really start to add it up, eh? I just talked with a father earlier today, or a husband, I should say. He's a father too, but his wife died 59 years old. Um, terrible, terrible story. And, you know, he's having a hard time. You know, you, it's just every story I follow up on because you have to. I mean, this is what it's about. And, uh, you know, he's just is, yeah, he's devastated. You know, they took out a perfectly healthy woman. And it was following a very similar thing to what happened to Grace the day before she died. She's uh, eating with him, says, boy, I feel great. And then they choose to take her out in this crazy stuff. It's just, it's, yeah. it's tough to, it's tough to stomach. It is. It is. I, I can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I have, um, I've talked about a few times the case with my mother. Uh, she was in, in out of the hospital my whole life. Uh, one thing led to another. It started with birth complications, just a few things. She had to have her gallbladder removed, right? She had both my brother and I, and then it was like she had an issue. So she went to the doctor. The doctor goes, oh, uh, we just got to take your gallbladder out or we got to take this out. And then it was like a surgery. And then it was, well, you need medications uh, to help you heal from this. So they give her medication. And then Oh, that medication caused a problem. Here's another medication to mask that symptom. And then it turned out my whole life, I grew up going into waiting in hospital waiting rooms, sleeping in hospital waiting rooms, uh, going to go to expert. She'd go to all these different experts. They'd see her. She'd wait six months to go see some expert. And then they would see her for five minutes. And all she'd come out with would be a prescription for yet another combination of drugs. And um, this is what motivated me. This is what, I, I mean, I'll finish that. In the end, she ended up passing due to heart failure at the beginning of the pandemic in around March or I guess it'd be uh, April 2020. And we couldn't even go have a funeral we, because they were at the time. That was another travesty was funerals were off. They couldn't go have funerals. And so we had I had to do a podcast funeral for my mother. That's And to this day, I still have not seen my family physically after that loss. And I know so many people that are in the same boat. Um, and what I did was I took that experience that I witnessed her go through hell 
and change as a person due to all these drugs and surgeries and all this stuff due to these, these doctors. Um, but what I did was collect notes the whole time. I started researching at a younger age, reading books from people like Eustace Mullins and Dr. Mendelssohn and some of these guys in, in the early days who were coming out to try to warn people about the corruption back then. And then I compiled all these notes. And now uh, what I'm trying to do, similar to what you're trying to do, is turn that tragedy into something positive. I'm making a documentary film series called Cult of the Medics, where I'm exposing the dark uh, history of the dark side of this medical industry, the pharma industry, et cetera. And I feel like even though it's, again, it's hard to look at that, but by looking at it, now we're made aware of it. And that's the truth. The truth is what sets us free, right, Scott? This is why, and it's not always a fun truth to learn about, but it's that truth that is imperative for us to be able to save lives, uh, save as many people as we can, and try to bring solutions forward. So if we could wrap up with that, maybe um, as a final question there, unless there's anything else you'd like to share, um, where do you see the overall solution going here? Uh, obviously, there's the legal concept, there's the wake, you know, what you're doing, but where do you see this going in general? Do you see, you're working with Tom Rents, you're working with these people, do you see a positive trend to finally getting some of this evidence out to the world about what just went happened over this past two years? Well, that's a great question. Uh, first, I'd say that it's it's impressive that you're doing that documentary. That is, that's really a wonderful thing. Um, so personally, where do I see this going is I, I see this as urgent and I don't think this is going to get fixed. I don't see that um, changing of the guard, a new administration, any of that is going to fix it. I believe that there's going to become a parallel society where the people who take the time to get educated um, are going to band together with like-minded people. And it's that's the way it's headed. I just, I do not see a solution um, because that seems society is too far gone. Can there be a solution? Absolutely. And it's called repentance. I mean, our society has completely abandoned God. And so only God can fix this mess. Man can't. And so if men decide to repent and realize that they, I mean, God has been faithful throughout history when nations repent, um, that he takes them back. But he's also been faithful with the consequences of not repenting. So I, I see the, the message is urgent. I mean, it's time to get right with God if you're not already, um, because it's, um, I, we're, we're in a pretty bad, we're in pretty bad shape. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't blame you for thinking like that. And I know I, I try to stay as, as optimistic as possible, but I realize the fight we have in front of us. Um, and I pledge that I want to be here to fight for that cause of bringing out the truth, waking people up. But I agree, parallel society, it's what they seem to want. It's what's happening. I'll tell you some positive news. Uh, I live in British Columbia, Canada. I don't know if you caught wind of what went down with all the trucker convoys and whatnot. Um, you know, kind of a disappointing end, although I don't believe that was the end. It was just the beginning. But um, what I was happy to see was in a crisis, uh, all it took was one little candle of hope. And all of a sudden, we had over 11 million Canadians up in arms and, and, and joining in 
and uh, you know, wanting to see change. And that's where it begins. You have to be identify the problem and then want to find a solution and have at least enough hope in your soul that a solution can present itself and you work towards that. And so Canada right now, as, as hopeless as it sort of seems, I'm seeing the groundswell of exactly that parallel society being formed that you're talking about. Um, all over the island where I live, there's these little potluck uh, groups, there's these little communities being formed, community gardens, community churches, community uh, outreach, pro people that are coming together, uh, especially under this whole thing with the vaccine passports and everything, um, where everybody was like, we can't even leave our country and come back in. I can't even fly to another province within my country. Um, and so people under that threat, they came together. That was, an, that was a natural thing that people did. And I thought that was a beautiful thing. And I, I went up recently to a, a beautiful place not far from me. Must have been about 200 people there. They had taken a barn that somebody had on their property and converted it into a gathering place for the, for the community. And they made it the whole top level. There was a few people that had their small businesses shut down, like many people did. They're, one of them was a restaurant. So they took, instead of just walking away in depression, they said, well, we're going to donate all the chairs and tables and stuff from our restaurant that got shut down to this community wow. sort of place. And they did. And they made such a beautiful place there. It's got the vibe of like a 1950s style diner with like one of the guys he works on old cars and, and uh, his name's Ben, a great guy. Shout out to Ben. He makes like custom motorcycles and cars and stuff. And he just, he put them all in there and they, the whole community came in and did construction. And now they meet every single week for a potluck dinner. They have music, they have speakers, they talk um, and everybody's sharing ideas. There's members of our police, uh, military, average folk that are there. And I'm just seeing that's just one little example of so many of those that are happening all over Canada. And I believe from the messages I get all over the world. So in a weird way, there, we're seeing a storm happen here of all this evil and all this corruption and all this stuff that we're talking about. But in the wake of that, there's a spirit of freedom being woken up in the hearts and minds of, of, of all of us. And those that are answering the call are trying to think, what can I do? What can I do? And in that thinking, people are coming up with solutions. They might be small. They might not take the whole thing down, but they're thinking the way maybe our forefathers would have thought during hard times where, you know, let's go back to having our own community, relying on each other, uh, bypassing that system, maybe even getting our own banking system together, maybe getting our own, you know, communications together. Uh, the hospitals, there was in Canada and I know everywhere, there was all the doctors and nurses that lost their job because they didn't want to take the jab. Well, they haven't been brought back in all of them. So a lot of them are starting private practices yeah. and trying to reach people that way. So there's always some, there, there's always a, an, a reaction to the action of evil. And when the, when those good people come together under that spirit, uh, magic really can happen, even when we're the underdog. In fact, the good people of history that rose up against tyranny were always the underdog. They were always outnumbered. And that was how your country was founded. Yeah. And I look up to America for that. And I feel like that spirit is returning. And that's what the solution is, is doing what you're doing, which is being proactive in the face of these tragedies, um, working together, creating community, creating forums where people can share their stories. And then when all the, what is it, two or three are gathered, the spirit is there, right? The Holy Spirit is there. So that whole idea, I think, um, I just want to shine some positivity your way and say, hey, it's happening in Canada. And if it can happen in Canada, oh my gosh, it can happen anywhere, man. <laughs>
that is that is really a fantastic summary you just you just laid out. I think it's uh, it's wonderful the way you just you just explained that, and it's uh, that does create a spirit of hope when you lay it out like that. Well, I'm glad, man. I just want to give you that hug. I want to give you a hug. I, I just, hey, look, if there's anything I can do, uh, you let me know, Scott. I want to thank you for sharing this story, for doing the work you're doing. I'm going to share out your websites. I hope people will go and subscribe to your Substack and support you. That may be the last question. People are going to ask, is there a way I can support or donate or foundation or what can I do? Uh, what can people do? We have a tab on the website that says, how can you help? And there, we have a give, send, go there, and our mailing address is there if somebody wants to mail checks. Um, I haven't been really proactive on that piece yet, but you know, of course, we need to we need to start raising funds because we're the foundation is going to be up and running in a short period of time, and we have lots of expenses already just to you know do all the things we're doing. We've got a big billboard campaign, which is a couple hundred thousand dollars that we've put into that of our own money um, locally just to to bring light to the hospital that killed Grace to make sure people are aware locally as to what's going on. So of course, we, you know, I, I'm not going to stop people from helping and I would welcome it. Well, you should. And um, I, I wish you all the best with that. And you'd also, you know, if this does go legal, you're going to need some help with those fees as well. So um, I hope people go follow your story, your work, and please come back anytime, Scott, if you have any updates, even if it's just quick and you're like, Hey, I got a quick update. Let me know. I'd be happy to have you and do what I can to help you out and, and support this cause. I'm, as I said, I'm doing a bit of a series on this. It all happens spontaneously. All of a sudden I get contacted by people who are victims of these hospitals and this whole protocol. And I'm like, well, my, my spirit is telling me I have to cover this. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to be bringing David Rodriguez on on Monday to tell his story. It's a medical kidnapping case, and I'm sure there are many others. And again, just to try to get that message out. So uh, for those that are listening, if this show resonated with you, please help us by sharing it out. That's the best thing you can do. Get it out as far and wide as you can and uh, join in because we're all in this together, as they say. And uh, I think we can win because the truth is going to win out in the end. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, much blessings and love to you and your family, sir. Well, thanks, David. The pleasure's mine. It was very nice to get to know you. Same here. Same here. Well, I'll let you go and I'll let everybody else go as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, tune in Monday at the same time. Diego Rodriguez will be here. Um, and we have a lot more coming your way here on Truth Warrior. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>